Hi everyone, welcome to the Black Nature Narratives podcast. I'm Beth. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Kamal McLaren, a Frederick Douglass scholar and curator of the Frederick Douglass House Museum for the National Park Service in Washington, D.C. Douglass was such an accomplished man, many don't know that he was also a keen naturalist. Listen in to hear Kamal's research on Douglass's life in relation to the natural world. So I'm very excited to be here today with Kamal Clarin, who works with the National Park Service um, here in Washington, D.C. And he has an amazing job as curator of Frederick Douglass's house, which is set in 15 acres of, of beautiful land overlooking the capital. Nice to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Not only are you the curator here, but you're also doing your PhD. Yes, uh, my PhD, I've completed my PhD, so, um, but I've been working uh, for the National Park Service for about uh, 12 years now, and uh, sort of it allowed me to sort of become sort of a Douglas scholar in many ways. So I'm learning new things on a daily basis about Mr. Douglas. Yes, and you've taught me so much about him in our short time together. I think a lot of people listening will be aware of Douglas as um, a voice for abolition, uh, to advance democracy and the right to vote, but perhaps few of us are aware that he was also a keen naturalist. Yes, Douglas was a naturalist, I always say, from cradle to the grave. Um, And my research showed me that Mr. Douglas probably was in tune with nature um, as early as you know a child growing up on a plantation in Talbert County, Maryland, engaging nature, um, sort of, you know, the plantation was somewhat, it was also a sort of a space of horror, but it also was, for Mr. Douglas, the first six years of his life, um, he really didn't realize he was a slave, and he also talked about sort of the, um, I don't want to say, I don't, I don't want to sort of downplay his enslavement, but he even sort of acknowledged that it was sort of a sense of innocence for him. Mm-hmm. So the actual plantation uh, in and around, or the, the, the green area or landscape in and around his grandmother's cabin was his own playscape in mm-hmm. many ways. And we begin to see that uh, his grandmother, uh, Betsy, actually would sort of um, train him in the ways of nature, in the waterways of the Chesapeake. And so we see that that notion of waterways and nature would also be sort of ongoing themes in Mr. Douglas's life. Yeah, and it sounds that he he was part of an oral tradition that he had a, a grandmother who could pass down this knowledge. Yes, yes, and she was very uh, in tune. She was known as one of the, the uh, outstanding fisherwomen uh, in the actual area, and uh, sort of she would you know cast nets and and uh, capture fish and uh, sort of use it as sort of a small. A way of agency of sort of being very independent away from the, the plantation in many ways and uh, she was very known uh, as a uh, planter and being sort of rooted in the earth in many ways and we, we tend to forget that a lot of the, a lot of African Americans were rooted in the earth in many ways mm-hmm. uh, we think uh, today this whole notion of uh, sort of being a naturalist and being sort of green was sort of a modern uh, idea of whiteness but we see that because of the, the experiences that African Americans um, suffered in the United States, in many ways it was a form of agency because they sort of took ownership of the land yeah. and pretty much uh, made the, made, a, made a way out of nothing. Mm. So. But survival depended on that connection. Yes. Yeah. When you talk about the fishing and, and the, the gardening, I'm imagining that's to supplement themselves. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And Douglas, and that was a sort of a, a a uh, trait or hobby that Mr. Douglas 
carried on throughout his life uh, where Mr. Douglas um, any home or domicile that he would purchase he pretty much always had a garden and always um, practiced from farm to table and matter of fact even with, even with his kids he passed that along down to his kids because if you look through the the correspondence they would actually uh, be in competition with one another mm. in terms of the planting season and uh, for example his son uh, Charles uh, was bragging that his, his sweet potatoes were probably much better than his own father's. <laughs> It's wonderful that um, nature and the, the products of their growings is that source of pleasure, and, yes. and there's a sense of togetherness there in in um, sort of sharing and joking with each other, mm -hmm. that competitiveness. Exactly, and uh, we find that uh, sort of a lot of those activities and joking and engaging one another uh, really uh, took place here on uh, Cedar Hill, uh, which uh, Douglas named the, the property uh, in 1877 when he purchased it. Uh, for $6,700. You're talking about 15 acres of land, a historic, uh, sort of looks like a mansion. It also uh, juxtaposed of the uh, sort of the plantation a home that he actually, uh, his owner had. Yeah. And uh, you see, really see Mr. Douglas uh, sort of rising um, and having that pleasure, being a man of leisure here in and on the property, engaging in nature on uh, in many ways on a daily basis. Yeah, it really is an extraordinary place. We've got incredible views across the capital. Um, we can see the Washington Monuments, we can see, um, is that Congress over there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and you, you also pointed out towards Maryland, sort of the place of his enslavement. Yep, the skyline is really sort of, a, sort of highlights a metaphor of Mr. Douglas's life as he transitioned from slavery to freedom, because over to your right is the state of Maryland, and he grew up on a plantation on the eastern shore of Maryland and then the home sits right in the middle and over to your left you can see the actual capital and the Washington Monument. And Mr. Douglas often would uh, sort of talk about this idea of being the first African-American to be allowed in the press gallery along with uh, having the ear of the uh, congressman at the time and also uh, keeping an eye on them. So he's, he often would sort of talk about him sitting on, a, on his porch looking over at the capital keeping his eye on the, the politics of the day. So. I like that image of him being king of the hill. Yes. Yeah, looking down upon Washington. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, by that time, he was known as the the wise one or the sage of Anacostia. Wow. Yeah. So if we talk a little bit here about Cedar Hill and 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 how he would have used this space. So he would have used it, uh, engage nature, several different ways. He planted uh, trees, uh, many of the trees here on the property. Uh, right down to the magnolia tree that he planted for his uh, first wife, Miss Anna Marie Douglas. Uh, he also planted a lot of trees on his other properties, but here, particularly at Cedar Hill, he planted uh, fruits and vegetables. Uh, he would take long walks um, with his English mastiff dog named Frank, <laughs> and uh, right out here, in, engaging in nature in terms of physical fitness, he would lift weights out here on the front lawn, and there were gymnast rings out here on the porch. You really do get the sense of how this must have been a place of sanctuary and um, nourishment for him. I mean, he did so much incredible work throughout his lifetime. Um, you can get the sense of being on this, this small holding, um, eating organically, um, enjoying the space and the views. Must have been really important um, in restoring him. Absolutely, and it's sort of, sort of, if you think about it, he had a home um, in the deeper section of the city where, and we're talking on the eve of the Industrial Revolution, the second Industrial Revolution, where a lot of people were actually sort of moving into the cities, moving from farm to factory, but Douglas was actually doing the opposite. He was moving 
on the outskirts in the rural areas of, of DC. And as you said, this was a sanctuary. We sort of uh, highlight that this was sort of a rustic retreat for Mr. Mm. Burroughs. So. Mm. And you're mentioning he also had a, a keen interest in flowers. Yes, uh, he loved to uh, collect a lot of uh, plant specimens. Um, we know that on many of his travels, he actually would um, uh, basically uh, plant, um, well, take pl flowers and actually press them in his book. So he was a flower presser. And uh, in the 1990s, uh, my predecessor, former curator, actually um, discovered uh, numerous flowers being pressed actually in uh, numerous of his books. Wow. So as you walk through the house, there's incredible um, objects that he's curated throughout his life. Um, is there anything that, that stands out for you in terms of his, his passion as a naturalist? Uh, he collected a lot of um, shells from uh, different countries. Uh, matter of fact, uh, we know that he brought back a conch shell from Haiti and uh, he talks about it in his journal, uh, sort of being swept out in the sea and uh, scared that the sharks would uh, mm. bite him. But he often, uh, even when he was away, uh, he engaged in nature, uh, you know, going on uh, strolling beaches, walking out into the beach, uh, even uh, bathing out in the, in the seas. And we do know that uh, locally here, um, probably another connection to your, your um, visit is uh, walking the Anacostia. Mm -hmm. So yes. we know that Mr. Douglas actually would uh, walk the Anacostia from here, uh, Cedar Hill, you know, go into the deeper section of the city and take strolls and he would actually pick out a lot of uh, uh, archaeological finds and stuff out of the actual mm. uh, Anacostia River. Mm. It's extraordinary um, the passions that Frederick Douglas had but also the, 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 the range of um, commitments he had, how much time he was able to invest. He, he lived such a full life. He sure did. He sure did. And we, we know that that whole notion of nature probably sort of stuck with him all, you know, that was sort of a release for him. Yes. And so he probably would, uh, you know, so that, that was his releasement in terms of everywhere he would go. He loved to uh, visit uh, museums and uh, gardens uh, all throughout uh, England and in many countries that he visited. Mm. A lot of green spaces. Yeah, it, it's so heartening. I feel a sense of pride for him in seeing what he's created for himself in his journey from enslavement in Maryland to the clear prosperity here on, on Cedar Hill. It's it's wonderful that he uh, was able to create that for himself. Yes, and, and you really do gain that when you sort of step on the actual, uh, you know, sort of sprawling greenscape, I mean, in landscape, it, you really see that here's a man that you know, was supposed to be confined to a plantation to be so this world citizen in many ways and to be able to afford a, a property like this and to really sort of craft his own existence out away from the deeper section of the city. Yeah. That's incredible. Thanks so much for your time today, Kamal. You're more than welcome. Um, you are one of uh, the leading experts on Frederick Douglass and particularly in terms of what we know about him as a naturalist. Where can people find out a bit more, um, perhaps reference to your work, your writing? So I'm in the process of publishing a, an article on Douglas as a naturalist, uh, which will be uh, published uh, May of next year. 2020. And 2020. And, uh, and it will sort of talk about Douglas, uh, particularly here on Cedar Hill, as well as um, his time on his travels. That's wonderful. Thanks so much for your time today. You're more than welcome. Thank you. All right. 
Thanks for listening to Black Nature Narratives. Check back soon for new episodes. If you're in the UK and want to be part of a community of people of colour gathering in nature in real life, sign up to wildinthecity.org.uk for updates, events and membership. To support this podcast, visit our Patreon page or the link below.